0: All right, we're coming to the end of the life of David. As with the Sunday morning sermons, I'm not entirely sure how many lessons left. We might do two more after this, at least one more after this, but maybe we'll be done after uh, next week. As we're coming to the end of David's life, we've done, I didn't think we'd do the whole life of David, but... It kind of it worked out because I, I wasn't preaching every Sunday night. It was just sort of we had this nice break and I didn't get tired of it. Like I usually get tired of stuff because we had nice breaks. Uh, so we did, I think we did the whole life of David. in it's, uh, I think this is lesson 18. We did a lot. It's been like maybe a year and a half or so, maybe a year. Uh, so as we come to 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, Uh, This is one of the passages, one of the stories that we're going to have to look at both. Uh, Usually, as we've gone through the life of David, I have picked either the Samuel account or the Chronicles account, and I focused on it, but for this particular story, in what I think is the most difficult passage in David's life, not difficult as in uh, difficult for us to apply, the application's relatively easy, but difficult as in what in the world does this passage mean? Difficult to understand. In 2 Chronicles 24, oh no, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, I knew I was going to do that too, Second Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. Now we're going to read the story, uh, uh, I'll say a few things as we go through the text, and then we'll, we'll unpack it as we go. Uh, and, and I have both of these up there just for the first verse here, right? Uh, in 2 Samuel, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Uh, in 1 Chronicles, the chronicler says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel, give me a report, etc. First uh, Chronicles 21, verse 3, Joab said, I want to note again, Joab is the the mature guy in the story all the time. Joab is the one. He's kind of like the hero, really, of David's life that is sort of the unsung hero of David's life. Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king? All of them, my Lord's servants. Why then should my Lord require this? And the chronicler includes a little snippet here that the recorder of Samuel, probably at this point Gad, is recording the the events of David's life. Uh, Why should this be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab is saying up front, this will be a cause of guilt But the king's word prevailed against Job. So Job departed and went through all Israel and back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave a sum of the numbering of the people to David. All Israel were there. uh, That many people who drew the sword. And in Judah, that many people. Uh, And again, the chronicler includes a detail that Samuel does not. He did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering. For the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. Uh, and then after that, so this happens, and then what? 2 Samuel twenty four ten, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant. In 1 Chronicles, but God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in this thing that I have done, uh, uh, but now please take away the iniquity. Uh, and then... Way at the end. So we're skipping over a little bit of stuff here. We'll talk about it in the middle. The consequence that is meted out. A bunch of people die. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Basically, God gives David a choice of consequence. You can have three years of famine. You can have three years of, lo- or three months of loss in battle, and in, in you'll lose all the battles for the next three months. Or you can have three days of pestilence. Those are your three options. A lot of threes going on there. His ultimate choice, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. He's basically saying, not the losing in battle. But God, you pick out of the other two. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from that morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men, and then skipping down a bit, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and said, "Behold, I have sinned and done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house." We'll pause there in the text. Lot to unpack here. Let's dig into some context before we dig really into the story. You'll notice in Second Samuel, if you have your Bibles open. If you don't, you will not have noticed this because I didn't read it. Uh, that the story that we're reading here in 2 Samuel 24 comes after David's last words. Chapter 21 is an interesting story that we're not covering but chapter 21 is an interesting story about the mistreatment of the Gibeonites and there's some retribution against Saul's uh, descendants and then there's some some sort of recapping and and uh, uh establishing of David's last words and sort of wrapping up David's life and then chapter 24 we have this story uh, in in the jarring beginning to this story coming immediately after the last words of David in chapter 23. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled. There's no, in chapter 24, there's no context for that. What is happening here? We can go a couple of ways for this. Either some event has happened that that the, the uh, Gad does not record, or this is going back to chapter 21, where God was mad, and he's still mad about chapter 21, and, and this is continuing forward. And so the story really is picking up, I think, after the end of 2 Samuel 21. He, the uh, Gad is resuming his recording of... This story, when God was displeased with Israel. Now, the answer is why, or the question is why. Why is this the case? Well, the Chronicler gives us a little bit of insight into why God would have split this up. This is the first part of the Chronicler summary of David's preparation for the temple. Continues into one Chronicles twenty-two. You'll see, and again, if you have your Bibles open, uh, chapter twenty-one is the David census and the sin, and then chapter twenty-two goes right into David preparing. Solomon, uh, the temple preparation for Solomon to start building the temple in his reign, right? Because David said he was told he wasn't allowed to do that. Uh, this story is directly connected to the temporal preparation. We'll see that at the end of the story. We haven't read it yet, but we'll see that at the end of the story. And so I think what's happening here in, as they're framing this, both Gad, who's recording the end of 2 Samuel, and the chronicler, probably Ezra, who's recording this history. Remember, Chronicles is written after the exile. They've come back. So he's retelling the history of Israel with a particular uh, view in mind. They are framing this really as the beginning of the temple preparation. That's what the story is. And so they've, he's summed up David's life, the end of David's life, and then he's resumed telling this story because what's going to take place next after David dies? It's important to note, the census was not inherently wrong. And again, the 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 story poses a number of questions. Okay, first we have the reconciliation of the angel, or the God incited, or the devil, or the Satan incited. We'll talk about that. The second thing that is odd about the story is this thing that he is David is incited to do. He's tempted to do this this census was not a thing that was inherently evil. Exodus thirty verse eleven. This is way back. This is the commandments to Israel, right? To Moses. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, you shall, uh, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. And he goes on. And we're not going to read all that. But what's the point? God is expecting the people to be numbered. He's expecting that. They're going to do that. There's a number of reasons why we would do that, of course, as a as a, a governmental entity, right? We think about our country. Census is important for us for a number of reasons, of, of accounting and, and figuring out how to distribute resources. Like, there's a, a number of important reasons why you'd want to have a census. Now, God does say to Moses, there needs to be some particular offering that goes along with that. The possibility that people have suggested is... They did not do this in David's census, that they did not. And it's interesting what he says here, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Maybe they didn't do this. More details of the idea of a census in Numbers 1. But the Levites were not listed among them by their ancestral tribe, for the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. You shall not take a census of them, among the people of Israel. Chronicles, and why we read the Chronicles passage, is specific to point out, again, Joab, being the adult in the room, Joab specifically excluded the Levites from the census that David commanded. And you kind of get the sense David didn't either know about that or David didn't want that. David just said number everybody, and Joab sort of went behind his back. Hey, I know he said to do this. We're not going to number the the Levites. We're not going to do that. Also of note, Joab did not number the Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, in this census why is why is that well it's possible because the current place of sacrifice in Israel at the time of this census was in the tribe of Benjamin, in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. That's where people went to sacrifice, because they didn't have the temple, right? The temple hasn't been built yet. The tabernacle is currently located within the lands of Benjamin. And so perhaps Joab is excluding... I know we're supposed to exclude the Levites. Hey, maybe we should exclude the tribe of Benjamin, because that's where all the sacrifices are taking place, and we're not supposed to include the Levites. So let's just exclude Benjamin, too. That's probably what Joab is thinking. So what's the problem, okay? A census is not evil, because God gave them... Uh, uh instructions for how to conduct a census why is God so mad at the census? there are three main reasons to do a census and, and again this is not just true of Israel this is true this is true of all nations throughout history number one is taxes got to know how many people there are so we can know what to set the tax rate at and usually it's done historically that the uh, king would do a census, In preparation to increase the taxes. I want to know how much I can get out of these people. Right? So, and, you know, perhaps that's what David is thinking here. Number two. Was to count up the able-bodied men for military service. Which Joab actually does report on that, right? The chronicler is clear. He reports there's so-and-so able-bodied men who can wield the sword. So maybe that's what David is thinking. I got a number up. How many people can I draft? How many people can I conscript in my battles? The last reason to satisfy pride in the king's domain because I'm so awesome. Let's, let's get a count. Let's measure. How can I measure my awesomeness? Let's see how many subjects I have. It's a really nice number for me to think about how great I am as a king because I rule over X amount of people. And Joab is pretty pointed in his objection. Why would you do this? You don't need to do this. May God bless you and may there be a hundredfold more people. May God increase us. But don't do this thing. This is coming after, again, in the the story of of Samuel and Chronicles, this incident is coming after a series of military victories. They don't need more military uh, people. They don't need more soldiers. He's just won a bunch of campaigns against the Philistines. He's had great victories over the Philistines. In fact, I think this is the instance uh, right before this story. This is the instance where the last giant is slain, the last uh, son of Gath. Uh, Of course, Goliath of Gath, right? One of the giants. Uh, This is the last one. He kills them in this sequence of battles, and they don't need more soldiers. They just have defeated their ancestral enemy. There's no need to conscript anybody else, there's no need to increase the tax base. David's kingdom is flourishing. This is towards the end of his reign course we know what's going to be happening with Solomon right Solomon's going to end up being blessed beyond measure but David's in a pretty good spot he's quelled a civil war of his own making we've talked about that at length but he's you know he's sort of secure and stable in his kingdom he doesn't he doesn't need to increase taxes at this particular point which leaves us with greed and pride David wants to take a census because he wants to there's no good reason other than I want to now we should note. I'm going to note it now. I'm going to note it in a minute. David, in both accounts, Samuel and Chronicles, is very quick to take responsibility for wrongdoing. He does not argue with the punishment. He does not argue with the condemnation. He immediately recognizes, ah, I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I shouldn't have done I'm full of iniquity. I, I, I've done this bad thing. David is not trying to get around, well, why, why are you blaming me for this? You made me do it. David's not trying to have that attitude. David immediately, without hesitation, acknowledges that he did the wrong thing. And he would only do that if he felt that he had done the wrong thing. Now, we're having to infer that. What about the inciting figure? Before we address this, I want to emphasize it one more time, because this is a very important part of the story. David and God both ascribe guilt to David in the story. David accepts it. God says, you did this thing. Here's your choice of consequence. Have at it. Which one do you want me to do? However we think about the verses that we're about to talk about in the first verses of the story, neither God nor David thinks that they absolve him of responsibility for the census. It's important for us to note that before we get into this. So, the confusing part. I don't know, the confusing. One of the confusing parts of this story. Second Samuel 24, 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Again, we're just plopped down in the middle of this context. There's no, there's no explanation in Samuel. Why is he angry at Israel? We don't know. Maybe it goes back to chapter 21. But ultimately it's unclear. First Chronicles 21, verse 1, written hundreds of years later, right? This is written way later. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So which is it? This is the confusing part. And this is why I say this is the most difficult text in the life of David. Generally speaking, there are two proposed, and I've got solutions in quotations here, uh, because the Israelites, throughout their history, the rabbinic tradition, and you can sort of read their, sort of their writings about this, The Israelites did not think this was a problem. The Israelites did not argue about this passage. The, the, the traditions of the elders, and right, you can read some of the inter... We've talked about this quite a bit on, on Wednesday nights. The intertestamental period where we have some of the writings of the rabbinical teaching and the different leaders, and the, we have the Talmud later on. They don't, they don't debate this text. They, they don't see a problem with this text. We see a problem with this text. And so a couple of possibilities here. One is translation, and one is cultural. Let's start with the translation possibility. I'm partial to this explanation, although we'll talk about it. It's possible here that Satan is a poor translation in this verse. Actually, not a translation at all, but a transliteration. Uh, You may, I I really harp on this idea. If you haven't been here very long, don't worry. I'm going to say this a lot. I hate transliterations. I hate them with, with a fiery vengeance. They're just the worst. In this verse... We have the Hebrew word uh, satanah, or uh, I can't remember the Hebrew Hebrew way. It's Satan. It's the Hebrew letters that say the word Satan. And then you've just taken that into English and made Satan. In the other Old Testament passages where this happens, this word is, is generally adversary in a more general sense. There are two other places where translators have decided this word should be transliterated as Satan, as a name, as a title. It's in Job 1 and 2. What's happening in Job 1 and 2? We have him going into God, right, the council of God, and talks and he has this argument. And it's very clearly that, that the Satan, the adversary, is a very particular figure in that story, right? He's going and arguing with God about Job. The other is Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, where it's a very similar situation, where we have the adversary who's arguing in the courtroom, accusing Zechariah. God, you shouldn't pay attention to this guy. You should, you should, you should accuse him. and You should, you should condemn him. He's, he's worthless. In both of those cases, this word is preceded by the definitive article, the. It's not just an adversary, it's the adversary. It's important to note. In this text, 1 Chronicles 21, that the is not there. It's not the adversary, it's just an adversary. Now the translators of the New Testament, the NIV, the ESV, I think most of the major translators have decided to transliterate this as the word, the word Satan, the title, the name of this particular adversary. But that's not really what the text says. The text just says an adversary incited David. More commonly, as in Numbers 22, 22, God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord. This is Balaam, right? Balaam and the donkey. God's anger was kindled as he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. This is the same word. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. Perhaps 1 Chronicles 21.1 should read, Then an adversary stood against Israel and incited David. And if that's the case, well, we can pretty easily reconcile 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles Second Samuel says anger of the Lord was kindled, he incited. How did he incite David? Well, he incited David through an adversary, either some advisor, maybe it was the angel of the Lord, right? We see the angel of the Lord later in the story in Chronicles and Samuel. He is all over the place, meeting out all sorts of destruction. So perhaps that's what the answer is. The second possibility is culture. This is the more common uh, explanation of this passage because this is how the Israelites view this passage. More common is attributing this to the Hebrew habit of disregarding secondary causes. What do I mean by that? That's a lot of fancy language. In the Hebrew Hebrew way of thinking, as in Job, Job is again a great example of this, God never clarifies cause and effect for Job. Job, there's a lot of argument. Why is this happening to me? How did God do, why did God do this to me? Why, why is this happening to me? When we, of course, are told in the context of the story that It was really Satan. God said, okay, you can go do this thing, and Satan does the thing. But God doesn't seem very concerned with making sure that Job knows that. And Job and his three friends, they're all very clear about, you know, they're saying God has done this horrible thing. Why is God standing as my adversary? Why is God striking me and all this stuff? And God never corrects them on that. Just sort of lets them believe that. Because in the Hebrew mind, the distinction between what God permits... And what God commits is kind of irrelevant. He allowed Job to suffer, and God did not try to clarify to Job, oh, actually, it was the devil that did that. You shouldn't blame me, because God understands what? That doesn't really hold any water, because what is he going to say? Well, why did you allow him to do that? Right? That's Job's next objection. Why? Okay, fine. You didn't literally strike me, but you definitely explicitly allowed Satan to strike me. So what's the difference? The chronicler then perhaps makes this difference a little bit more distinct, whereas the writer of Samuel, which is, again, at this point, Gad, because Samuel's dead. Gad, as he's recording this story, doesn't really see it's that relevant. Even if he just permitted the devil to do it, he still permitted the devil to do it. And so in that case, God is the primary cause. On the whole, the Israelites were not concerned, as concerned, with making this distinction as we are. This distinction in the nuance of cause and effect. Satan was the mechanism by which this thing may have happened. Again, this is the the argument. That Satan was the mechanism by which David was tempted here. But at the end of the day, it was God that wanted this to play out the way that it did. And so as he permitted the devil to do this, he is the one that is inciting in a secondary manner. Now, which of these is the answer? I don't know. James is much more concerned as we come into the New Testament. James is much more concerned with making this distinction. When he says in James, what does he say about God tempting? He cannot tempt anyone and is tempted by no one. So James is kind of uh, concerned with this distinction. At the end of the day, whichever answer it is, I want to make very clear... God does not absolve David. And David does not absolve himself. David does not argue. Oh, but I, I wasn't really in control. It wasn't really me. David doesn't argue that. And God doesn't allow him to argue that, even if he would have. The inciting, the temptation, still left David responsible for his decision. And when we come to application for us, we, in our situation, are very explicitly told by both James and by Paul, right, in Corinthians, God does not allow anyone to be tempted beyond what they are able, even when, and I want to say when, not if, even when God allows the devil to tempt us. Does he allow the devil to tempt us? Yeah, he does. He definitely allowed the devil to sift the apostles like wheat, didn't he? And he allows us to be tested, the tested genuineness of our faith. Even though God allows us to be tempted, it does not absolve us of guilt. We are responsible for our decisions. And it's interesting, Joab arguing to David, what if David had said, no, I can't do that? What if David had listened to Joab? You know, Joab, you know, I think about it. You've said some nice things. I think you're right. I'm not going to do this thing. How would that have played out? It would be interesting to know. Of course, it didn't play out that way, and God knew that it wouldn't. So the fallout. After being offered three choices, three years of famine, three months of loss and war, three days of pestilence, David's ultimate choice is to fall into the hand of the Lord. The Lord chooses pestilence again. It's interesting to note in Exodus 30 when talking about the census you shall give a ransom to, uh, uh, for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. There is in, a, in uh, I don't know if it's coincidental or if it's providential. Here we have a plague. We should note again David's extreme readiness to take responsibility. Both before the punishment, he realizes, Ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that thing. And then as the discipline is happening, what is his argument? I did the thing. Punish me. I did the wrong. Make me suffer. But once again, David is not the only one to bear consequence of wrongdoing. If we learn nothing else from the life of David, these are the two things that I want us to learn. The importance of being quick to admit guilt. That's, I think, uh, more than any other trait, that's the thing that David has that serves him well. When he is confronted with wrongdoing he immediately and unequivocally, time after time after time, admits he was wrong, takes full responsibility. He does not hem and haw. He does not try to argue or bargain. He just takes responsibility, and whatever happens is what happens, and he tries to make it right. That is David's, I think, number one trait. Number two, learning from the life of David. The sinner is not the only one who suffers for their sin when we make bad choices, it's not gonna be as wide reaching as David because I'm not a king, right? I'm not, I don't rule over however many people it was. I already forgot the numbers. I don't rule over that many people. So my decisions are in 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 a very real way limited in their effect, but my sin will definitely affect my family, won't it? It'll affect you guys probably because of my position here. Our sin, does not just lead to our own suffering. People will suffer who do not deserve it because of my decisions. Because of our decisions. That, again, if we're thinking about lessons from David, think seriously about your sin because it doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody in your life. So the conclusion here, 1 Chronicles 21-22. We're skipping over a bit of the story. The angel of the Lord. It's kind of interesting the story as it lays out, as it progresses. David sees the angel of the Lord doing, meeting out the justice here. And he's told, okay, he takes responsibility. Punish me instead. Stop punishing the people. And he's told, go to this place and buy this site. Sacrifice at this place and I'll relent. So David goes to this guy. Here's where he's told to go. Go to this guy. Buy this guy's property. Make the sacrifice there. David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted among the people. What did he say in Exodus 30? When you take a census, be sure that each pays a ransom. There's a lot of language about not short thrifting God in the census stuff. Here it's, let me take it at full price that plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it! Let my lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offering and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. Hey, David, no, you just... Now, I don't know why Ornan is doing this. Probably because there's a pestilence in the land and he's like, hey, let's just be done with this. You can just have it. Let's get the sacrifice done. We can be done with the plague. But King David said to Ornan, no, I will buy it for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. Nor, and this is the key verse... Nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid ordan six hundred shekels of gold by weight for the site. David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord. The Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. Again, David's attitude. Things to learn from. David makes a lot of mistakes. We have to infer the sin that David committed, as we previously seen. I, I think it's either greed or pride, one of those two. That he's either a greedy king or a prideful king in this particular moment. After initially succumbing to temptation, he's quick to turn back to God, calling for the full weight of consequence on himself, and recognizing that if it's a sacrifice from him, it has to be a sacrifice from him. It's not Ornan's sacrifice. Ornan is great in offering to give this, but that would make it his sacrifice. It's not David's sacrifice. That's Ornan's. David's attitude, again, demonstrating why he is a man after God's own heart. Despite all of his flaws, and we've seen a lot of them, haven't we? We've seen so many problems from David. What made him a man after God's own heart is this attitude. I will not offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. 22.1 Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. At the end of all this, a site for the temple of God is found. This is where Solomon builds the temple. This site. After all this, it's been inaugurated with sacrifice for the people to relent from this disaster. Now, you could think, and I I, I struggle with this in my own mind. Did God just do all this To get us to the point where they could build the temple at the right place. I don't know. It seems a little bit of a stretch. On the other hand. That's how they frame it in Samuel and Chronicles. Especially the Chronicler. The Chronicler is framing this whole story. As David's preparation for the temple. Why this story is recorded where it's recorded. Both in Samuel and in Chronicles. Is because this is the story that leads into... What Solomon is about to do in building the temple, the thing that's going to be the centerpiece of Israelite life for the next several hundred years. The lessons, as always, seem to be the same from David. Things that we've already said here. The supremacy of God's will in our lives. The wide-ranging consequences of sin. And the importance of quick and full repentance. And as we see in the story, God does use this story to further his designs. His designs and how this is going to play out in Israel for the rest of, well, not the rest of time, because eventually Solomon's temple is going to be destroyed, but building into the history of Israel, how this story leads into the next. All of the things that happen in our lives, what is it said? Paul says it, God works all things together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Included in all things is What? my sin. God, we could even put it in there, that verse. God works my sin together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. My sin is a thing. God works the sin of others for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Here we see again, David Admitting responsibility, even though in our minds it doesn't seem like maybe he should be forced to be responsible for this, but he is very quick to to think, yes, it was my fault. Just because God allows us to be tempted does not absolve us of guilt for our sin. We're expected to be better. Why? Well, in large part because we've talked about on Sunday morning, we have the Spirit. We have been given the way of escape The question is, will we take it when the opportunity presents itself? What's David's way of escape in this story? Joab. Isn't Joab David's way of escape in this story? Joab's, hey, David, don't do this. That'd be dumb. Why are you going to do this? Who is it in your life that says that to you? I hope you have somebody in your life that does that. That stops us at the moment as we're about to sin and says, hey, Chris, don't do that. That would be dumb. Most of the time it's Tracy. We understand that. But as we talked about this morning, that's part of the design of God's church, right? To have people in our lives that will pull us back from the precipice. If, if, we can humble ourselves and listen. That's the difficulty, isn't it? As we conclude, where he leads, I'll follow. I like this song a lot. That's what we're trying to do, isn't it? To follow where he leads together as a group. If you're unsure about your place in that, if you're unsure about, what does that mean for me? What am I supposed to do? Well, I'm happy to study more with you about that. And if not me, I'm sure there's a number of people here who would be happy to dig into that question in your life. What does God expect? Come while we stand and sing.